ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Next time someone says race can predict your future outcome, ask them if they think socioeconomic factors have any bearing. They are, in fact, the real indicator. I'm Amanda Vanstone. Welcome to CounterPoint. Worrying in general is just stupid. Worry about particular things that you can influence. For example, with AI, how can we set limits rather than, oh no, it'll kill us? And if you think wokeism is killing us, think of a new perspective for it. Compassion for all human beings is what we need, irrespective of age, gender, skin colour. Now that's a good idea. And so is combining Indigenous knowledge with modern technology to fight fires. But first, to what might be a predictor of your future opportunities. We hear a lot about how your particular race might be a big indicator of where you're going to end up, how you're going to do. Well, not everybody agrees with that. And sometimes we focus on one thing, forget to look at the others, and when we look at the other things, we realise there's a bigger picture. So it is with the question of where you end up, whether it is race or other factors. Now, To discuss that, we're going to be joined by Robert Lynch. He's an evolutionary anthropologist and his focus is on how biology, culture and environment come together and he joins us now from the United States. Robert Lynch, welcome to CounterPoint and your article starts with a quote from Mark Twain. It ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble, it's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Now, (laughs) that feeds into a common theme that we find coming up in our interviews, and that is when people are sure they're right, they're usually wrong. Do you think that covers the view that race is an indicator of where you'll end up? People are just wrong? Well, yeah. Well, so I came into this with a pretty open mind. I'm very interested in social mobility. And these questions that people debate all the time, actually, we have the answers to them. They're not statistically complicated. We've used some of the biggest data sets ever assembled on the American population, the answers are pretty straightforward. It's not even sophisticated statistics. So this issue of class versus race versus neighborhood, family structure, we actually know. And yeah, the take home message of almost all of this research is that it's parental income. It really just comes down. That's the main factor that predicts how you're going to do. If you want to know your income at age 40 at birth, And you were to choose, you know, kind of using John Rawls' famous veil of ignorance. You have no knowledge of your background, parents, class, gender, or natural abilities. What would you choose? And you should choose parents' income. You should choose to grow up in a wealthy family, regardless of race. Yeah. Now, is that largely because of the things that common sense tell us, that kids born into wealthier families get to go to schools where they might have tutoring, extra effort, where the parents can afford to make sure they get a lot of extracurricular opportunities that some kids don't get, and they can make a big difference. You know, playing a team sport, for example, teaches someone how to be in a team. It sounds dumb and simple, I know, but if you've never had to play in a team and you get in a workplace and you're in a team, not that easy. So is it the sorts of things that parents with extra money can provide for their kids the opportunities and that's it what makes the difference. It's kind of surprising because it's so obvious that this should be the case and the fact that it is should not be surprising to anyone because yeah parents use their money to buy opportunity for their kids. They do it through you know buying access to schools, good neighborhoods, college prep courses more specifically. Yeah that's one of the main functions of having money. Now, after family income, the family structure makes a difference, does it? Yeah, so it's interesting. About 35% of it, you know, it swamps almost everything else. It's just parents' income. 
if you want to, you know, predict, as yeah. I said, at age 40. This was done using basically every single child born in 1980 using data from the IRS, Internal Revenue Service. But after that, 35 percent, it turns out that family structure and neighborhoods are the next biggest factors. And that's where I think some of the confusion comes in is race masks those factors, right? So that's why people, you still get these different outcomes that are kind of map onto race. Like Asians do about 11% better than whites. Hispanics do about 2% worse than whites. This is after controlling for parents' income. Yeah. And then 11% worse if you're poor and black. But interestingly, and I'll just say this here, is there's no difference for black women. They do just as well as white women. Now you've thrown a spanner in the works. What do you attribute that to? Well, it just looks like boys are more sensitive to poverty and adverse conditions for a variety of reasons. But usually the explanation is that it's, at least in the United States, it's usually single moms. And so single family homes, boys tend to suffer from that more than girls do. And also girls seem to be more resilient to like to poverty and adverse circumstances in, in childhood. And I don't know exactly why that is, but there's a bunch of literature that supports that. But it is interesting, right? There's a kind of a double penalty for black boys of being poverty and single parent. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, now that you tell me that, it doesn't surprise me. I've always known that women are more resilient than men in many ways. But when you look at household income broken down by ethnic groups, there are big differences between them, aren't there? Yes, there are. Yeah, Asians outperform. But it's interesting if you look at, once again, after controlling for the biggest factor, which is parents' income, mm-hmm. you take, you know, Asian kids with parents with the same income as white kids, as Hispanic, as black kids. You control for all of that. You still get these differences, but those differences actually map like uncannily onto the chances of growing up in households with two parents. So Asian kids have a 65% chance of growing up in households with two parents, 54% chance for whites, and then it's 17% for blacks. So after we control for that second factor, so I'd say the first factor is parents' income. And then once we control for intact families, you know, Mm -hmm. two-parent families, the gap shrinks from about 13% to about 5%. So now we're talking about 5% difference. And the rest of that, there's a number of factors that matter, but a lot of it's just down to neighborhoods and kind of the culture of neighborhoods. Right. Now, when you did some research, it showed that families with similar income levels in similar neighborhoods had similar chances of success, independent of their race. Poor white boys, poor black boys came out the same. Right. Didn't it go on and show that it wasn't a factor of whether you were raised by a single mother, but more the type of neighbourhood you were raised in. That is, if you were raised in a neighbourhood that wasn't chock-a-block with single mothers, you'd have just as much chance as anyone else. It wasn't just your own family circumstances. The neighbourhood makes a big difference. Right, that's really important, is that this guy, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was a senator from New York, and he was the Secretary yep. of Labor in the 1960s, very, very famous report called the Moynihan Report, and he talked about the breakdown of the nuclear family was the primary cause of racial differences in achievement, and he basically talked about how we need to make efforts to strengthen black families. Now, the Chetty research, which is just the last few years, using everyone in the country and some of the biggest databases ever used on this, basically finds the same exact thing, except for, like you said, It's not whether your family, whether you come from an intact family with two parents, it's whether you're in a neighborhood. So if I live in a neighborhood where there are a lot of single dads and single moms, my outcome is almost the same as if my own parents were together. It actually is a social effect. It's It's called a place level effect. This, of course, calls into question what a lot of people are in favour of. They say, well, I'm in favour of a meritocracy. You know, pick the most meritorious candidate. But in a sense, we've shifted from, you know, a monarchical system and an aristotic system to a meritocratic one. Because if your parents have got a decent income because they had all the opportunities, etc., to start with a family that got a good income, 
then you've got much better chances because they will live in a neighbourhood that will help, et cetera, et cetera. And so you get to grow up and get the same opportunities, whereas the kid that grows up in different circumstances doesn't have those opportunities. So we've got a meritocracy that's in a sense just replacing an aristocracy. I'd say the meritocracy in large part is just based on luck, right? I didn't choose my parents. I didn't choose what neighborhood I grew up in. I didn't choose my genes. I mean, I didn't even mention that, but that's a huge factor. And, you know, that's probably the most taboo topic of all, but I didn't choose any of that stuff. So I think luck is just, in terms of a meritocracy, yeah, it may be merit, but a lot of it I had no choice over. Why do you think we don't talk about this so much? We focus on, oh, yes, well, you know, the black kids don't get as much chance or the Chinese don't or whatever, but we don't look at class as much as we should. Why have we underestimated it? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot. Progressives used to care about it. But throughout my lifetime, I'm 54 years old and born in 1969. Just throughout my lifetime, the idea that material conditions matter has just become less and less important, at least to progressives in the United States. In the 60s, it was known that this was kind of a big, important issue. But we've moved away from that. And I think there's a bunch of reasons. One is maybe the most obvious one is that it's just really hard to solve and it's costly professional class and wealthy people have to pay. They have to pay more in taxes. They may have to not get privileged access to colleges, which makes a huge difference. Their kids may not get better schools. All of these things, all these evolved drives that have us protect our kids, you know, come under pressure if we're honest about how difficult these are to solve. But if it's just racism or race, you know, you can do it with quotas or can have human resources solve it or have some implicit bias training. It's just a lot less costly. So I think that's a big reason. But I think there's also like some evolved psychological characteristics of people that we're not really good at continuous variables. Like what is wealthy? What's poor? Like where's the cutoff, right? It runs from $16,000 wealthy and $15,000 poor, where black and white is binary. And we get it. You're either black or you're white. So we're just a little bit better at those kind of distinctions. And then another reason that I mentioned in the paper, actually, is this thing called the availability bias. And the United States in particular has become more racially integrated, meaning we have more contact with blacks and whites and people of different races are more in contact now than they were 50 years ago. But economic segregation has been rising in terms of neighborhoods. And so we often don't see people getting evicted or people in poverty. So these issues like the dignity of racial issues or problematic speech and things like that seem to play a bigger role than people who can't afford lunch. Okay, so what do we do? As you said, it's very hard. You know, yeah. um, Kennedy ended the school segregation or college segregation, but this is a lot harder, isn't it? Yeah, one of the things that actually really, really helped, which is interesting now because there's a Supreme Court case They're about to decide it in the next couple of weeks. It's Students for Fair Admissions Against North Carolina, and it's about affirmative action, and they're going to come up with a decision, I think, sometime in June. But they're very likely to make affirmative action illegal across the board. It's a conservative court, and it could be that the only game in town is going to be economic-based affirmative action, where you give poor kids a chance, because universities are actually a huge way to level the playing field. There's almost nothing we know of that can help kids from the bottom quintile. If a kid from the bottom 20% goes to a good school, a good four-year university, you basically take that 35% difference and it flattens it. It's like a 2% or a 3% difference immediately. And so the mm-hmm. fact that universities accept predominantly wealthy kids, your chance of getting to Harvard 75 times greater if you're in the top 1% than if you're in the bottom 20%. I have to say, Robert Lynch, this has been a pleasure talking to you and I hope we can talk again Thank you very much for joining us on Counterpoint today. Thank you, Amanda. It's great talking to you too. You see, worrying about race might have been the wrong thing. You should have been worrying about class. And so it is with AI. Worry about the right things. You've heard about AI, artificial intelligence, and all the worries about how it's going to take over the world and we'll be exterminated and we're useless. 
yada, 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 worry, worry, worry. Well, our next guess is, look, let's worry about the right things. Let's understand what we need to worry about rather than just worrying in general. His name is Brendan Craig. He's actually a theatre director, editor and ghostwriter. You might say, well, what does he know about AI? Well, because he's doing a master's in digital and social media. And he joins us now from Melbourne. Brendan Craig, do you have a sat-nav in your car? I use Google Maps. I do indeed. Right. And you use the verbal version that tells you what to do? Absolutely. It's amazing what technology can do, but we are a bit frightened about it, aren't we? Why are we, do you think, so apprehensive about this? Yeah, look, I think that's a good question, and I think there's a long history of humans being afraid of, well, change, particularly Mm -hmm. technological change. I think we're wired to fear change, just like dropping a cat in a garden they don't know. You'll see them treat very, very carefully for a while. Look, I think it is natural to feel fear, but... We tend to catastrophise when it comes to technology. Yeah, and you go back to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, sort of, you know, scares the hell out of everybody about creating monsters. And then there's that Terminator series of movies, franchises, I suppose you call them. And the mere fact you can think of it makes people realise that if you can think of it, it probably can be done eventually, if not now. And so they get apprehensive. But you think that apprehension is ill-founded. Now, why do you well, say that? Well, I do, that? I do. This is just about the hottest topic at the moment on the planet and, you know, at any party start chatting to people and you bring up AI and everyone has got something to say. And the speed of uptake of chat GTP scared everyone and, you know, people forgot suddenly that we've actually been living with AI for years, whether it's, you know, Siri or, you know, the AI that runs... Sat-navs. You know, or a city's traffic. I mean, you know, we could make a list a mile long. So... There's a long history of fear and science fiction, you know, like Mary Shelley, Terminator, even uh, the famous Hal in 2001, A Space Odyssey. These are all writers tuning into, you know, the potential that's coming for technology and thinking the worst, thinking the worst of humans, I think. Yeah. Well, there was that guy, Um, Blake Lemoyne at Google. He got the sack in the end. He frightened the hell out of everybody by saying that (laughs) AI technology had become sentient. And that's not really possible, is it? Look, this is a distraction. And as I say in my piece, there are things to be worried about. There are things that we need to talk about. But consciousness is not one of them. And, you know, (laughs) the simple problem is that we are becoming very clever at creating machines which mimic humans. The latest, of course, is mimicking human language. So you ask a question of ChatGTP and you're having a conversation and then the replies come immediately and seem very much like they're coming from a person. Well, that's because that's how we've designed them. So just because we create something that impersonates humans and how humans behave and how humans talk doesn't mean that suddenly they're alive. No. Well, getting back to cats... You yes. use the example of a child that if it sees a cat three times and you say that's a cat, it understands it's a cat. In order yes. for a computer to recognise the cat, a program, it needs to have thousands of cat images run past it. And you can fool it by changing the light or something. So it, it doesn't actually recognise the cat. It just knows that's the same as, you know, a million other images that have been put through for me to store up and match. Well, that's right. And in fact, if you dig down and look at how this technology works, you know, it is literally very, very fast, but literally looking at one pixel at a time and gambling after, you know, thousands of tiny squares that this is more likely to be a cat than not. So it's got nothing to do with the way a human, yeah, even a two-year-old recognises a cat. It's a completely different Mm. kind of processing. Yeah. Well, I thought one of your really good examples that is about a car, you know, these driverless cars. Yes. Recognise an imminent collision and apply the brakes and it will respond to a child running across the road. Yes. It doesn't mean the machines learn to care about human life. It's just been programmed to whack on the brakes if something goes across its path. Correct. 
So it hasn't learned any of that at all. Hasn't learned any of that. I think in our lifetime, we're certainly going to see driverless cars and they're probably going to be a lot safer on the whole than human drivers. And I think that's probably the way to go. But they're not going to be perfect. There's going to be accidents for sure. And it's because they can be fooled. And there's lots of experiments at the moment in the various ways you can confuse a driverless car. Yeah, I wouldn't say you could argue, but, you know, people say, well, there'll be accidents and that's a reason for not doing it. But there are accidents now with humans driving, so no big deal that there'll be some accidents with machine-controlled drivers. Look, the piece I found most interesting in this article is the bit elaborating on the difference between the human brain and the internet, for example. What's the story there? You say our brain, the average one, contains about 86 billion neurons. I can hardly imagine that. I mean, how small are neurons? They must be, (laughs) how small? (laughs) Terribly small. What's the story there? (laughs) So, again, I mean, a lot of research, just trying to understand how brains work, starts with much simpler organisms than the human brain, but by the time you get to the human brain, we're dealing with immense complexity. It's not only the number of neurons, but the interconnectivity. So not only are there around 86 billion neurons, but each one has something like 7,000 connections on average. So you're talking about quite... Yeah, unimaginable numbers of connections. So that is just the first problem. To even try to create that electronically presents enormous problems, which, you know, look, we might see them solved in 10 years, in 20 years, we might see them solved. That actually still tells us nothing about how a mind, that sense of self, that sense that you have, you know what it feels like to be you. Mm. And that feels unique. And you understand other people have minds too. We still don't know how that mind emerges out of all that wiring in the human brain. We don't know. No, no. It's the greatest well, mystery. I mean, you say unimaginable, but you shouldn't have used that word because you actually did imagine. <laughs> you, you pointed out that if there were 86 billion neurons, 7,000 synapses, that means yep. about 600 trillion connections in a human yes. network. Yes. And the internet connections worldwide are placed to be about 50 billion And yet we've got 600 trillion connections in our own brain. So we've got the equivalent of 12,000 global internets working around up there. That's right. That's right. So you can work with that if you can get your head around that. Each human brain is equivalent. You're walking around with about 12,000 internets, the complete internet in your brain. Yeah, you're not going to pop that into Syria, are you? Not in a hurry. Not in a hurry. No, no, not in a hurry. Okay. Now... Where are we going from here? People were worried. I think they've got on top of this now for universities mm. generally that, you know, chat GPT could just write essays for everyone. But there, yeah. there are ways to pick that up, aren't there? Let's be clear. This is a game changer, as big a game changer or bigger than the internet. So mm-hmm. if you stand yourself in the year 2000, you think of what people thought of the internet then and how mm-hmm. even those who were making it were completely unable to predict you know, Google or Amazon or TikTok. So we can't possibly predict where this is going. So we have to, you know, let it evolve, get involved in the organic evolution as we have with every technology. Okay, let me ask you a question, Amanda. Do you have Google glasses? No. No. Do you have a 3D television? Mm, I don't know. I don't know what I've got. No, you don't. You see, you probably don't even know what it is, but those are recent technologies that, you know, when they first came out, looked like they might change the world. Neither of them went anywhere. Why? Well, Mm. consumers didn't want them. They didn't take. You know, they didn't have a purpose. They just didn't take, Google Glasses especially. Why aren't we walking around with everyone wearing these amazing glasses with our own sort of screens in front of us? So point is, humans have, you know, Complete control at the moment anyway of how these things evolve. And, you know, the best I can recommend for anyone who is concerned is to get involved in discussions, talk about it. Well, you talk about goal orientation. So we can create machines, let's call them machines, to do the tasks that we set them. And I think it's very encouraging the way you pointed out that the discussion we need to have is what are the goals we want to set these machines and limit them yep. in that way rather than trying to yep. imagine that we all need to understand how they all work, which we don't. I mean, yep. I know roughly how a car works, but I couldn't fix one in a million years. Correct. Ditto computers. Correct. So we need to learn how to use these in the way that I use my computer, for example, to draft articles or 
questions or whatever. Yeah. We need to yeah. learn how to use them. But the creators need to have limits, if you like, on the goals they can set. And that's a conversation we can all join in. We don't have to be yeah. techno experts to do that. Yeah. You've nailed it. That's exactly right. And that's why I say the consciousness discussions are such a distraction. You know, if a driverless car is about to run you over, do you care whether it's conscious of that or not? It's irrelevant, right? The only thing that matters mm. is the goals that were set. And, you know, this is true of many, many things. And look, we've lived through this amazing 20 years of the internet. Now, there have been hiccups, there have been concerns, there have been public outcry, there have been calls for regulation. You know, and I think we're going to see this again. There's going to be a wild west for a time, but already you're seeing, you know, rapid conversation. You're seeing regulations, you're seeing laws, you're seeing meetings. Of course, this is what humans do. If you think of Napster, I don't know if you can remember Napster, but for a brief time, there was this wild west of torrenting music and it caught everyone by surprise and the uptake and speed of it was unbelievable. It changed everything. Mm -hmm. they, then they tried to sue these guys and blah, blah, blah. It changed everything about the music industry. Until these things happen, until they become real, you know, people don't care. And then suddenly everyone has to scramble. Well, I think your article in Quillette is very well named, Worry About the Right Things. The number yeah. of people that are hand-ringers over life in general, wasting all that energy in their brain with their millions of billions of whatever they are, they should be worrying about <laughs> the right things and then we'd all be better off. Brendan Craig, thanks for joining us today on CounterPoint. Been a pleasure. Ah, the rant. Now, look, I've mentioned this before, focusing on overseas cooks, but really supporting locals in cooking, for example, following Nigella or Autumn, that's a Nigella recipe, an Autumn recipe. And we don't hear enough about the Maloofs, about Marion Grasby or Christine Manfield, and even the just old-fashioned cooks. Recently, I made a Navarin Printanier. It's a Julia Child recipe. Essentially, it's a lamb stew. Actually, an Irish stew with a few turnips added can be just as good. Creme caramel sounds fancy, doesn't it? But an old-fashioned cookbook produced in my state by one of the private schools years and years ago is still on sale. It's still got the old, you know, imperial measurements. And they have a caramel custard that's as good as any creme caramel you've ever had and, in fact, a bit healthier. French cooks knock out a tart tartin. But this old cookbook from a little school has an Elizabeth apple pudding, which is an excellent substitute. All I'm arguing for is that we shouldn't forget to be proud of ourselves. Our farm cooks, our CWA cooks, our flash cooks are as good as any others in the world. It doesn't hurt to be a bit compassionate with yourself and, in fact, with everyone else. Being compassionate is a good thing. I don't mean soppy and pathetic and weak, but feeling compassion, understanding the other person's point of view, but the position that they feel in, that's really important. Now, is that the same as being woke? Mm, I'm, I'm not sure. So we're going to talk to Julian Adorning. He's a writer and marketing consultant for the Foundation for Economic Education, and he joins us now from Colorado in the United States. Julian Adorney, what do you think of the word woke? I think it's outlived its utility, honestly, because it means so many different things for so many different people. You know, I saw a tweet from one person kind of blow up and it said, being woke just means caring about people and promoting social justice. And obviously that's not what most critics of woke mean when they criticize woke. You know, then you have people on the other side on the right who for them wokeism means you know, social justice fundamentalism, it means being anti-enlightenment, it means prohibiting free speech and wanting preference treatment for different groups and wanting to sort of remove the idea of universal rights. And so the two sides are talking past each other, and so I don't think it's a very useful term anymore, honestly. Mm -hmm. So what do we do about that? 
It's a really good question. I really like my friend Angel Eduardo's point, just talking to people about individual issues. So rather than having a grand, cohesive term for this stuff, yeah. just if someone's very anti-Black Lives Matter, talk to them about Black Lives Matter. Or if they're very pro-gender transition surgery for minors, talk to them about that. You know, But talk to people as people, as individual humans, about one-on-one issues. And I feel like that can be more effective than these sort of catch-all broad terms. Yeah, okay. Now, Jonathan Haidt, we've interviewed him before, and he, with Greg Lukianoff, wrote a book, The Coddling in the American Mind. Now, he's got something to say about safetyism. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? I really love that term because we all agree that safety matters. It's a virtue in our society. We want to keep our kids safe. But what Haidt and Lukianoff did with safetyism is safetyism is the idea of pushing safety to an absolute utter extreme, untempered from all of the virtues, untempered from the idea of, you know, giving your kids independence or helping them take risks or helping them develop maturity, things like that. Like don't cross the road until you're 10 years old. Or the best one I heard was I'm not letting my kid get in the pool until he or she can swim. That's just ridiculous, isn't it? They're not going to learn to swim if you don't let them (laughs) in the water. That's a vicious cycle. They're never going to learn to swim. Okay. So we move on to compassionism now. Does that help? Has that got a better framework? I think so. And the point of compassionism for me is really, you know, is about identifying the psychological underpinnings of whatever you want to call it. You know, you can call it compassion. You can call it far left ideology. Understanding the psychological underpinnings of that and the through thread between BLM and trans right activists and, you know, genuine socialists or communists and all of that people who want to defund the police. And I think the through thread is, it's not that they're bad people. It's not that they're monsters, not that they're grifters. They've taken a good thing, compassion, and they've taken it so, so, so far that it's untempered from all of the virtues. And that actually turns it into a bit of a vice. Mm. You wrote an article for Area magazine, and in it you said that mm-hmm. compassionism, I'm quoting this now, compassionism, might also help elucidate many examples of cancel culture. And you used the example then of a conservative student invited from University of Virginia, invited Mike Pence onto campus and the college paper demanded the invitation be rescinded. So how does compassionism help there? That's a really good good question. And I want to reiterate, I'm very much against cancel culture. I do not think that we should try and stop people from speaking or cancel them or anything like that. But in terms of the psychological roots of why these students are doing this, if you read the article they wrote, they're very, very obsessed with protecting the kind of minoritized groups on their campus. They're very obsessed with protecting mm. the safety of the black students and indigenous students and Hispanic students and LGBTQ students on campus. And they believe, you know, very wrongly in my opinion, but they do believe that Mike Pence's speech represents a physical danger to those students. Obviously, I think it's a little absurd, but that's kind of one of the examples of they have this compassion for their fellow students, these kind of underprivileged minoritized students, and they're taking that compassion just way, way, way too far at the expense of other virtues like listening to other ideas or helping those students develop the emotional resilience to hear a person speak that they disagree indeed, with. Indeed, indeed. I mean, emotional resilience is, <laughs> I would hope it was something that all kids can develop. We interviewed someone recently on trigger warnings, which were apparently started to help people with post-traumatic stress disorder and then became something that students at large thought would be a good idea and have a trigger warning about what's in this book or this lecture. And as it's developed over time, it shows that it doesn't actually help even people with post-traumatic stress disorder because, coming back to emotional resilience, the point of being able to survive with PSTD or some other issue is to be able to cope, not to get a warning to run away. Got to be able to cope. And that's what emotional resilience is. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And this is something I had to kind of learn firsthand. I don't know if I ever had PTSD. I was never, you know, diagnosed. Mm -hmm. I've dealt with abuse in my past. I've dealt with intense addiction. I've dealt with intense suicidal ideation, high anxiety, things like that. And the thing that helped me through them was... I found a kind of very gifted men's coach and he helped me become strong and he helped me face down my fears and face down those mental problems and develop the emotional resilience to, you know, become like a pretty fully functioning human. 
Whereas if I had just gone the compassion route and I just started to run away from my triggers and hide from them, I would still be a wreck of a human being and be very, very sad life. So I do think there's immense yeah. value to resilience. Look, you make another point that people, trans activists, mm-hmm. might be well motivated yeah. as opposed to simply politically motivated. But you make the point how it's important to prevent children from making irreversible, life-changing decisions, even though you know that that might cause them suffering at that time. When you say, no, you're not going to do that. Because the trade-off is that they can be exposed to a variety of different perspectives, possibly change their mind later, and giving them that option, making them take that option really, is better. In other words, don't look at just the here and now, but look at the decision anyone's making or the comments they're making in a broader perspective, not just you said that and I don't like it. Exactly, yeah. And this is a case where most parents recognise that doing the best for your kid doesn't mean giving into them in every little thing. You know, when when a child's six, they may want Skittles for dinner and stay up until 4am and you as the responsible parent say, I'm sorry, no, your life will be better in the long run if I don't give this to you. Because You're not having Skittles for dinner, want. yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, we don't let kids get tattoos until they're 18 because we recognize that minors decision-making ability can be fraught. And I do honestly think there are teenagers who have gender dysmorphia, and I think there are children, very, very rare numbers, who can benefit from gender transition surgery. I just think you have to very thoroughly vet those cases just yes. like you would very thoroughly that, you know, I mean, a minor getting a tattoo or an 18-year-old getting married. It's not that it never goes well, but you have to vet those kind of things as a responsible parent. And that's something our society seems to be forgetting. Yeah. And the other concept that I haven't experienced this yet, but and obviously it's in the media about women going into women's bathrooms somewhere and there's a trans woman in there and that makes biological women very uncomfortable but the trans activists don't accept that. And that seems a bit unfair to me that, you know, you want your concern addressed. And I understand that you're a trans woman. You maybe don't want to go to the bloke's loo. We're meant to understand that. Fair enough. But surely at the same time, you're meant to understand that your presence makes some women in the women's bathrooms uncomfortable. And it seems that in so many of these examples, way away from trans stuff, any issue you want to raise, People are thinking about their point of view and not positioning themselves in a society with other people with different views. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. There are very hard trade-offs here. And this is a case where I've had some commentators get kind of tripped up because we all think of compassion as it should be this universal thing. I'm compassionate towards every human being. That's not the psychological root. Compassion can be very selective. You can have compassion for one person and zero compassion, zero empathy, zero consideration for someone else. In the same circumstances, do you think? I think so, yeah. Compassion is a very Mm. funny thing. And as humans, Mm -hmm. I think we can sort of justify anything we want to justify. And so I think Mm. the trans activists, you know, they have a lot of compassion, a lot of desire to help the actual trans folks, which is noble. But then they do sort of forget the necessary compassion towards actual biological women many of whom are, like you said, tremendously uncomfortable and with very good reason, very uncomfortable with biological males in locker rooms and bathrooms in female-only spaces and sorority houses, whatever it is. Now, have you got some examples of where we feel sorry for one group but not for another, but really they're in the same circumstances? I think so, yeah. So one of the common things, and you see this on the far left, is this intense compassion and empathy towards poor black Americans, poor African Americans, who are growing up in South South Chicago or some of these more destitute neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And they do have an incredibly hard life. You know, we should have compassion for them. We should have empathy for them. Mm-hmm. But then the far left often lacks empathy and compassion for very poor whites, you know, growing up in Appalachia, growing up in these broken homes and these abusive homes in these kind of towns that have been gutted by globalization, these towns have been gutted by outsourcing of jobs. And there's very little compassion on the far left for poor whites, even though they suffer quite a bit. And so I think the way through for me is not this endless game of whack-a-mole or this like, oh, I have compassion for this subgroup, but not for this subgroup, you know. The way out for me is 
what the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism calls pro-human. You know, we should all care about mm -hmm. humans of any skin color, of any race, of any gender, yeah. just by virtue of being human. I think that's the way out of this whole kind of mess and this whole rat trap. Mm, that's a very good idea. We've got not only people not being compassionate for both sides, that is trans women and cis women, we actually have them arguing with each other. And the one that often comes to mind is feeling compassionate because someone steals because they're poor. I mean, who doesn't understand a single mum with a couple of kids who's just desperate to get some more rice or some more bread or something? I get that. But equally, if you're the convenience store owner and, you know, liberals come and say, oh, look, they haven't got any money, we think, well, what am I, the bank? You know, he's not the government welfare system. He's got to run a business. He's got to make a bit of money to pay for his kids to go to school. So we are a bit selective, aren't we, in where we dispose of our compassion as if we've got a limited amount. But that's a good idea to think of human first rather than any, you know, particular quality. Yeah, thanks. And, yeah, I think you're exactly right. We need compassion for the store owner. I mean, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a freelancer. A lot of entrepreneurs struggle. You know, it can be a hard thing. A lot of businesses go under. We need compassion for everyone, regardless of their circumstances, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their gender, their sexuality, regardless of whether they're store owner or the, the hungry mother, just because they're human. Mm. Julian Adorni, I think this, for me anyway, been a really interesting discussion. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Amanda. It's been wonderful. That means be nice to everybody. We should have added, and be nice to the country as well. We've got one of the best fire management systems in the world. Bushfires. You know, they frighten the hell out of people, and so they should. They can just travel with enormous speed and the heat. Unbelievable. So instead of talking about, oh, climate change, oh, bushfires, oh, whoa, wringing hands, some people are out there doing something about it. What can we do to control bushfires? We don't want to get rid of them. They're a part of the life cycle. Anyway, Rowan Fisher is an information technology for development researcher at Charles Darwin University. And he's written a piece for The Conversation, Painting with Fire, How Northern Australia developed one of the world's best bushfire management programs. And he joins us now from Darwin, actually. Rowan Fisher, welcome to CounterPoint. Have you ever been in close proximity to a, a real bushfire as opposed to burning back? Well, living in northern Australia, you see fires all the time. They're the most fire-prone landscapes in the world, really. The tropical savannas across our north, they experience yeah. extensive fires every year. So, yeah, absolutely. Whenever I'm out and about out of Darwin, I'm always coming across fires. But generally, they're not frightening. They're fairly low-intensity fires and they're right. a natural So you haven't been one where you've had the hell scared out of you? No. No, I wouldn't, wouldn't no, want good. to well, lucky you. Those, for sure. <laughs> lucky you. <laughs> now, tell us the story. What's going on here? We're using... Traditional owners' knowledge, which is not listened to enough, park rangers and pastoralists. I would have thought the pastoralists would be the beneficiaries of this rather than the givers of information. But anyway, you're all working together. How does that happen? Well, as I said, we live in the most fire-prone part of Australia. I mean, most people don't realise every year probably about 90 to 95% of all fires that occur in Australia occur across the tropical north. And that's because we have these really intense wet seasons where we get a lot of grass growing and then these very long dry seasons. So fire really is a natural part of the cycle of these landscapes. But those fires were managed for the last 50 to 60,000 years. And it's only been recently, as sort of people were moved off country, we started to get to more severe wildfires or that sort of classic idea of bushfires that are a bit scary. So a really important innovation is getting people out back onto country and burning again. And it's really been led by a lot of the traditional owners, traditional land management groups, but everybody's involved across the north now. That's not just the Northern Territory, is it? Because right across to Western no, Australia, no, is it no, going we, to Queensland as well? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So we go from North Kimberley through the top end over to the Cape. So, yeah, it's a massive region. So 
you know, we're looking at around 20 to 30 percent of Australia, this vast landscape scale fire management. And yeah, so over the last 10 to 15 years, there's been this concerted effort now using a lot of modern technology to support the outcomes to as I said, proactively put fire back in the landscape and to try and reduce the extent and severity and intensity of those fires that we get very late in the year when conditions are very hot and dry. And what we've been mm. able to achieve is a reduction in the number of fires across northern Australia by a huge amount. We're looking at an area three times the size of Victoria where mm. we've seen a reduction in fire. And this is at a time when, you know, we're in the north as elsewhere. We're experiencing more severe fire weather due to climate change. But at the same time, we're seeing these incredible outcomes. And that's due to a lot of hard work, really, by people on the ground. Mm, mm. Yeah, I get that. So now, because of the satellite technology that you can use, you can produce maps so that people can understand where there have been recent burns. And that feeds into the decision-making about where the next burns will go. Yes, that's incredibly important. The way that we've been able to incorporate space technology to inform the management that's going on the ground. And there's two types of information that people receive. So every few hours they get hotspots of where there's current and active fires, but mm -hmm. also every week we use the satellite imagery to map areas that have already been burnt. And a combination of those two things, you're able to see where fires are likely to spread and to go out and make sure that you're assuring that you've reduced fuels um, strategically over the country. So that combination of all that on-ground local knowledge and that traditional knowledge going back millennium and then incorporating that with the advanced satellite imagery that we provide allows people to get these amazing outcomes. Mm. I'm not sure how close to the ground on this you are, but I did some work, oh, I think it was a year and a half ago now, with some of the traditional owners in Kakadu and Uluru and, and Buttery National Parks. And in Kakadu, the different clans have different views about how to control fires. Some will agree, for example, to setting fires by helicopter, others not. Do you find that right across Australia, there are different views about how to go about this or is that not something you're involved with at that level when they're setting the fires? So different groups have slightly different strategies, but in mm. order to manage sort of the really vast and quite remote landscapes across the north, yeah. most groups are using helicopter drops in sendries as one component yeah. of their work. But it's also important, particularly for those traditional owner groups, that they do burning on country by foot as well. They can't reach the same extent of area, but it's an important right. part in transferring that cultural knowledge, that on foot burning. But one isn't mutually exclusive to the other. They sort of complement each other, I think. And that's the way that a lot of groups are working. And it's incredibly important when they're doing their burn planning that the different clan groups, but also pastoral groups and government groups all be able to sort of work together because fires don't mm. stop at boundaries. And No, uh, they don't. They're like animals. They don't recognise that. That's right. So you need to be able to work together constructively to be able to plan across the landscape how you're controlling these fires. Sure. Now, Rowan, I'd like to say, oh, this is great news. This is news on Counterpoint. We're not a news program, as you know. But it isn't really news for anybody, is it? This started more than 20 years ago. Well, that's right, yeah. So we've been providing this sort of satellite-based information through a website. Most people across Northern Australia know it as NAFI, North Australia Fire Information, but we actually cover 70% of Australia now, so all of the vast arid, semi-arid and the tropical savannas. So everybody involved in land management type application across Australia regularly accesses this sort of fire information through NAFI. And I think NAFI was really pioneering and it, it was derived from work out of a tropical savannas cooperative research centre, as you say, 20 years ago, where there was this realisation that we needed to understand fire better and we also needed to manage fire not as particularly an emergency response issue but as a broad-scale land management issue. Mm, and I know mm. there's more talk of that down south in the southern states recently about the need to think about fire in a different way, but we've been doing this for over 20 years in northern Australia and for many people there's an unbroken line of fire management going back 60,000 years. So. 
mm. as I said, as we're using it's, new technology and tools, but it's yeah, the same indigenous knowledge. Yeah, it's That's a right, ridiculous yeah. thing, isn't it? That Western culture seems to think of fires in this landscape as being, I don't know, man-made or extraordinary. I mean, I get that in built-up places, like in Belgium, for example, there wouldn't be much in the way of bushfires, I wouldn't imagine. But here it's just a part of the ecosystem and we've got to learn to live with it and manage it. Now, can I ask, you've been doing this a long time. Okay, in the early years it would have been building up knowledge, but you've had a fair whack of knowledge for a few years. Is there anything that comes out as patterns that you're learning as new knowledge because you've got this data over time? Or is it, in a sense, repeating each year pretty much the same? Yes, I think that's an important point you make. We've now got 20 years of this burnt area mapping, which gives us us an incredible resource to be able to look back in time and to understand the frequency of fires at different times of year in different landscapes, but also significantly be able to monitor in great detail and look at the change in those fire regimes. And that's where we're able to show this incredible reduction in fire frequency across these landscapes. But yeah. also Have you got a figure for that? A figure? Some sort of figure? Yeah, so around 640,000 square kilometres is the area where there's been overall a reduction in fire frequency if we compare around 20 years ago to more recently. And that figure is 665,000 square kilometres. If we look at a reduction of those areas where there were the more severe late dry season fires, and those late dry season fires are the ones that we really want to reduce because they're the ones that are most destructive. And they also release the most greenhouse gases. And an important component of the work that we've been able to do, mapping these fires over a very long period of time, is to actually be able to quantify with some degree of certainty the amount of greenhouse gas emissions from fires at different times of year. And this has then led to a federal government, it's called a Savannah Burning Greenhouse Gas Abatement Methodology, which then goes to support remote communities with their fire management through producing carbon credits. You see, everywhere you look, if you look, there are good stories. And Rowan Fisher, you've given us one today. Thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. I think it's an important story for all Australians to understand. It's incredible innovation and incredible outcome. That's the program for this week. Thanks for joining. And look, thanks for the comment about the segment on colonialism. If you want to hear it again, you just go to the ABC site, click on RN and follow the prompts to Counterpoint and you'll be able to hear it again, the good and bad of colonialism. Anyway, until next week, this is Amanda Vanstone saying see you later. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.